The Antidote meets with singer-songwriter and Peter Raw, Ontario native Meg Culkin. Thanks for joining in, Meg. I'm really happy to be here. Are you really? Or are you just saying that? No, I'm really actually super stoked. <laughs> so. You, your sister Shannon, and brother Andy, they've always been a large part of Trent Radio over the years. So what's the attraction? Oh, okay. So I will qualify by saying that I was the first Culkin sibling at Trent Radio. Um, I started going to Trent Radio uh, because I had a friend who was an operator. And then I very quickly started getting in to the noise production scene because radio art and noise continues to be pretty important at Trent Radio. And I just loved the fact that you could come up with a show and a concept, whether it was, uh, you know, particularly rigorous or not, and just go for it. Producer-oriented radio is not a super common thing anymore. And so the fact that you could just walk in essentially off the street and say, okay, well, I want to have a radio show. And then they'd teach you how to have one. So that was really, really good. So I got involved with Trent Radio almost as soon as I could. But growing up, I was really into Trent Radio, too, because I listened to it and, you know, I was like, oh, these people are super cool. And then, you know, it was the place to tune in for weird music or people talking about <laughs> their cat. And how weird was your show? My show? I've had a few shows. My first show was actually a poetry show, um, which wasn't particularly good but I enjoyed it a lot and then I hit my stride with a show that I did for a number of years called The Mad Ones which was a show that was a noise show that played with the remote feature of mm -hmm. Trent Radio so you could loop your own voice by playing radio feedback to yourself and then rebroadcasting that feedback over and over and it created this loop that slowly disintegrated and so by exploiting that I created this sort of chanty droney show called the mad ones which was really fun and i played it usually late at night and it was a it was a good show a lot of fun and that's really a variation of what you're doing tonight because yes. we're just standing outside the venue in peterborough and you're doing job with dave brandon joyful joyful yep gotta dave explain Grennan. how you do that yeah so dave Grennan and i have done music together for oh, the better part of a decade and mostly out of trent radio and he and I ran into each other because we were both into strange sounds. And I also like Dave because he is particularly attracted to strange sounds, but also he's, he's capable of being quite silly while he's also a perfectionist. Anyway, we started doing stuff together at Trent Radio, and this is our first attempt. Joyful Joyful is our first attempt to take this kind of music, which is based on loops and vocal loops and harmony and noise and mixing and bring it into a live context. It's that terrifying because there's so much involved with that as you're performing. It's not terrifying, but it does involve a lot of improvisation if things don't go quite as planned. And I think that there's a lot of improv in the songwriting process of it as well, because things sort of just come out as you're messing with, you know, 13 to 20 pedals and you know, just singing with what's happening, right? So depending mm -hmm. on what's coming out of the machine, it affects what you're going to sing and what you sing into it then affects what's going on. So that feedback loop, I think, is a good metaphor because you're you're taking what's being fed back to you and then working from that. So And so you can do that live, and if, you, you know, if something goes wrong, you just improvise. <laughs> just keep going. It's like any kind of performing. I'm going to back up a little bit about some of the stuff that you've done in the past. Everybody knows that Peterborough is really a music town. You and I first met just last winter 
And I told you that the band that you were previously involved in, Tin Vespers, was the best thing to ever come out of Peterborough. You got to be honest with me. Do you, do you think that's deserved? I was very flattered when you said that, because a lot of very good music has come out of Peterborough. I agree. And uh, so I'm honored that you think that. We really enjoyed making that music, but I was like, okay, like up against everything from the Silver Hearts to, you know, Sebastian Bach. I'm like, wow, <laughs> Tim Vespers is up there. You know, I'm just, I guess I'm honored that you think that. Well, people are going to find out tonight because we're going to play some of Tim Vespers. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. So you got to tell me about the background of you. Did you always plan on creating music or when did this all come about? I don't know if I plan on creating music. I I make music, right? And I don't think I necessarily have a choice in that. I have a choice in what I make and who I collaborate with and all that stuff. But I don't think I get a say in whether or not I make music. I'm going to make music one way or the other, whether that's just singing silly songs in the car or, you know, just riffing around. But I always, I always sing and I always write music and have been since I was a kid. So I, I don't think I actually get a say in whether or not I, I create music. Um, different projects, though, have kind of arose. Like different projects like Tin Vespers or like my project before that, Gin and Sparrow, or different other collaborations that I've done with other musicians in Peterborough. You know, I think that they come in a season, right? And then there's a season where you make a lot of music of a certain kind or, you know, you write a song cycle. But that base thing of, of making music... Uh, that's just kind of part and parcel with just rolling, I think. But the way you're talking, you're making it sound as, as if you're driven to do it versus wanting to do it out of passion. I don't know if it's that I'm driven to do it. It's that it's something that's inside me. So it's not that it's like I have a passion for music. It's that there's music in me. If somebody said to me tomorrow, Meg, you can't sing anymore or you can't write music anymore, that would just be a non-starter. I'd be like, I don't actually know how I would roll in the world if I couldn't make stuff. And it doesn't matter whether I'm making stuff so that other people can hear it. I go through periods where I don't make stuff that I'm sharing with other people, but I'm always making stuff. So it's not that I'm driven, it's that it's sort of innate. It's not driven from the outside, it's kind of driven being like, well, I don't know, I don't really know any other way to be, to be honest. Hmm. <laughs> Teen years, who did you grow up listening to? Because that's the influential time. It's a good question. Um, I listen to a fair amount of... Uh, I listen to a lot of Rage Against the Machine. And a lot of really angry punk and metal. Zayo. I really liked Zayo for a long time. Zayo. You're not embarrassed by liking Zayo? Uh, no. <laughs> also, like I like Striper. Uh, Striper, of course. Uh, but you know what? If I was actually going to be like really, really like honest with you my fave is and will always be pedro the lion pedro the lion yeah david yeah. bazan yep david bazan yep. yeah he's a fantastic songwriter like just incredible and i he's you want to talk about one of the most undervalued people basically singing exactly the same way he walked through how he dropped his faith and you could see it album by album progressing as he started to question mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then said no i am not a christian you know what, though? I think that the thing about Dave Zan is that, like, he was a musician long and ever before he is a Christian musician. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he does 
is not actually that different from the things that David does in the Psalms, right? You read the Psalms, they're not actually 100% devotional, right? And the thing is, I think David Bazan is just like, he's honest. He is honest about his journey. He's honest about his struggles. He's honest about his feelings. He's honest about a lot of things, which is something that I think Christian music could use more of, right? Is that there's this idea that singing about doubt is somehow not uplifting. And it's like, no, like, I think that David Bazan's songs that exhibit his doubt and his struggle have been very, very helpful to me, you know, in my own life, right? So... I don't know. I'm jury's out on how David Bazan identifies, but I, you know, I'm looking forward to his next album. But also, when I was a teenager, I came into an appreciation of uh, folk and sacred music. Uh, so I got into some Canadian folk. I started going to shows in Peterborough as well, and that was pretty influential. Like even just like going to like all ages shows at the Gordon Best. You know, going to see the Diplomats when I was like you know grade eight (laughs) and you know stuff like that but also you know by the time I was 15 or 16 I started to build a repertoire of knowing a lot of hymns and a lot of contemporary Christian music too and also really starting to get to know some really ancient Christian music and I think that was also part of my musical bread and butter when I was a kid too so it was a a huge range okay so we're talking rage against the machine too hymns yeah and i liked it all i like a lot of music and i really like i like country and started to get into bluegrass too when i was a teenager yeah i've heard of people that like country yeah (laughs) do you not (laughs) no yeah I, I, i really like old country i don't like i don't like new country but old stuff i really like a lot um old timey and bluegrass stuff i like a lot as well yeah so i think if you had asked me when i was a teenager what i listened to i would have said that i listened to punk and metal uh, but in reality, what I was listening to was actually much more broad than that. And what I liked was very, very broad as well. So, Then who influences you now? Who do you like to listen to? <sighs> I'm still really influenced by sacred music that I hear, especially really, really old sacred music. I really like a lot of southern gospel songs, like really old southern gospel I'm really into, like shape note singing and primitive Baptist stuff I'm really into. I really enjoy folk music and not in the kind of like snap your fingers music sense. I mean, I like people's music, right? I like music that's made in communities for a small community and I think there's a lot of heart in that. And I I also like, and I'm influenced by lots of musicians that I think were in Peterborough, musicians like Brian Wagner, I continue to be very much influenced by uh, the late, great Brian Wagner. Because, I mean, there's a lot of musicians in Peterborough, and I think in other smaller towns who have the wherewithal to just be themselves and to just have that audacity to make weird stuff or just make whatever it is that they're going to make. So Because Brian was doing... Drone music. Yeah, Brian was doing uh, turntable stuff, drone music, noise, radio art, and uh, certainly, like, I was really, really influenced by Brian and continue to be very influenced by Brian. I think I'll, I'll owe Brian a lot in my music for the rest of my born days. Meg, I only know a little bit about your background. Like, were you brought up as a Christian or did that come about later on? Well, that came about later on. So, my. My mom is a recovering Pentecostal and my dad's a recovering Catholic. 
and recovering. I like yeah. that. Well, and the thing is that at different points in their younger lives, they were both quite devout and then, you know, fell out of it for reasons that were pretty legit, I think. And then, so by the time they got around to raising us, they had, I think, a cultural and a lingering attachment to um, Christianity, but they didn't raise us going to church. But my grandparents were very devout Catholics, and I grew up going to church with them sometimes. But it wasn't until I was 15 or so, and we did, Shannon, I say we, I mean my sister Shannon and I, uh, and my, we'd had a, a kind of a rough year. And I had like uh, that kind of classic born again experience. Uh, and that was pretty intense. Uh, I, uh, I met a fellow who uh, worked at a Christian organization and he was doing a kind of a, a youth talk, which I'd went to because there was pizza and something about what he said kind of resonated with me. And then I, you know, it was like, hallelujah, fallen over, born again and a week later, which lasted for a very long time. I was very devout with an evangelical Christian faith for about six years or so. So, yeah, and that certainly was a very profound experience. In It's very typical in evangelical faith. It, it, that's, your, that's your life. That's your community. That's your world. That's how you think. That's who you're with. That's your friends. And also, that's a whole new way of relating to the world, right? And I, you know, I, I developed a really serious relationship with scripture mm -hmm. which introduced me to a new way of reading right i'd never read quite like that before i'd always liked reading but like reading scripture in an evangelical way also has had a like a quite an effect on me right so there's a lot of cultural capital attached to that text right like you know and and having read it a few times uh has served me reasonably well in understanding stuff because you know literature makes reference to it a lot too right so yeah. But you guys had some struggles with church, too. Sure, sure. I mean, when I was a teenager, I found a church, and my sister and I went to church, and we were really actively involved in... Peterborough has a church in the city, so there's a bunch of different churches that are connected. And, uh, you know, we were really, really involved, and I think that, you know, the, the only thing that sort of set me apart was that, you know, I was, I was a little metalhead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> pretty punk, you know, like I spikes and chains and the whole bit, right? Shave my head all the time. And, you know, I was like, I'm pretty out there. Uh, but when I was about 20, 21, I came out of the closet as queer. At the time I was working at a Christian organization and uh, that, you know, that wasn't going to fly. And I knew it wasn't going to fly either. Um, but, you know, I, I'd come to know this thing about myself. So just kind of wanting to be honest I, uh, I came out to my employers and then, you know, I, as a result of that was pushed into resigning and, you know, like lost my job, lost my community, lost a lot of things, I think. Isn't that brutal that churches and Christians really shun the entire LGBTQ community? Sure. It's funny. I was mad for a long time and I was really grieving for a long time because I also didn't know where I fit, right? Because just because I'd come out as queer didn't mean that I had any connection whatsoever to a queer or a gay community. I didn't I didn't know anybody who was gay because everybody I knew was Christian, right? Right. So I was really alone for a good year or two, right? Because I'd, I'd sort of had lost membership in one community and had not I hadn't yet entered into another. And I mean, I was angry for a while, and I'm less angry now uh, because I don't, 
I think everybody was doing the best they could. It's just that the best they could wasn't good enough, right? I don't think they'd ever met a gay person uh, <laughs> that they knew of, right? I'm going to tell you a little story about myself. Right. I was so adamantly opposed to the whole community. And it really took me meeting and being all of a sudden becoming friends with people that were gay, that were queer. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? I really like these people. Yeah. We're and awesome. it was a radical change. <laughs> well, and it's funny, right? Because my what my work is now, you know, I I do LGBTQ advocacy with uh, the Anglican Church uh, in Toronto, and a lot of what my job is is to just be people's first gay. So I'm the person that they meet when they're like, "Well, I don't know where I stand on the issue," and I'm like, "Okay, but like, what if?" how do you feel about me, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. you put your personhood on the line so that people come to understand that this isn't an issue. It's not a topic. These are people. And I think that that was a difficult thing when I came out a little over 10 years ago, is that, you know, people had their pat answers about an issue, you know, where they stood on gay issues or gay marriage or whether somebody should be able to date or whatever. And... I wasn't an issue, you know, I was Meg, I'd been working at this Christian organization for a while, it had been my dream, I was devout, you know, I I really wanted to do the right thing, and it felt like the response really wasn't about me, right, or my relationships mm -hmm. with my friends, right, it was about an issue, and so I think that that's something that, you know, when you f meet somebody from a marginalized community, uh, or you meet a community that's othered, somebody from a community that's othered, you know, you move beyond that thing or be like, where, where do you stand on an issue? It's like, well, no, how do you feel about a person, right? Good point. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, though. I'm glad you, glad you came around. <laughs> I did. That's because, awesome. Yeah, all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? I'm a complete idiot. Right. I'm being a complete fool. And why am I being this way? Now I go to a church that is very open yeah. to that whole community. And yeah, and we do have people that have come out at the church, and it's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. What about you personally dealing with this in Toronto? Has this changed you by being actively involved with others? Because you're the gatekeeper, Meg. <laughs> so here's what happened, is that I had a couple of years where I didn't fit anywhere, and then I came into a real involvement and personal growth in terms of my own orientation and my identity and my gender identity and my membership in a queer community and really came into my own. If you see pictures of me from when I'm about 20 to the time I'm about 23, it's like I just phoenix, right? Because I, I came into an understanding of who I was and a real pride and comfort in that. And then the interesting thing is that while I was, you know, still, you know, kicking around the community, doing a lot of music and stuff like that, I wasn't part of a Christian community at that time, but also my own faith really didn't leave me and I didn't really have anywhere to put it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't ready to, you know, knock on some church's door and say, well, will you accept me? I was too hurt, right? But, you know, I think it came out in my music. I think it came out in my weird radio shows, I think it came out in Tin Vespers, I think it came out in a lot of places, this process of figuring out 
where to fit that piece that had been so important for such a long time. So by the time, you know, I moved to Toronto and all this stuff, like it was a couple more years, this whole re-entry back into the Christian community is actually really recent. Uh, and it started out uh, by, you know, I started going to 12-step programs and stuff like that. And, you know, like I started to just come back into a practice of faith. You know, when I, when I saw a job posting for somebody who was a youth worker who identified as queer and who had experience doing Christian youth work, I was like, I'm qualified. <laughs> so, I mean, that was weird, right? So that's an unusual posting, right? So, and that was, that was my work experience, right? So, yeah. So my entry back into the church and into the Christian world has been really, really interesting because it feels like a very particular homecoming. Um, because all of a sudden I've re-entered into a part of the church that is very progressive, right? And progressive in its practice, but also in its theology. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm entering into a part of the church where there, there's no question of whether I can be who I am. And that's very, it's been very healing for me. There's been so many churches, especially in the evangelical realm, where they want to fix you. Yeah. Did anybody want to fix Meg Culkin? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's funny, right? Because I didn't have any fight in me, really, when I first came out, right? You know, I wanted to come out and I wanted to have the right to tell my near and dear people that I was queer. Uh, and it was suggested to me that if I wanted to keep my job, I should go into uh, Christian counseling, which would have been a kind of conversion therapy, right, to try and fix me, right? Yeah. And I refused, you know, and then from there, what happened was a sort of a several month negotiation with my employer where we had this code of conduct in front of us and we went back and forth and I hadn't violated a code of conduct, right, because I hadn't done anything. I just had sort of, I realized that I was gay. And through this back and forth, eventually what they got me on was that I was not supposed to endorse or espouse uh, any act that contravened the code of conduct. And the problem was that my two best friends at the time were two gay men. And I ate dinner with these two guys every night. And, uh, you know, I couldn't sign it. I couldn't sign the damn thing. Because I thought, you know, if I sign this thing that says, you know, I won't endorse or espouse homosexuality, and then I go and I want to have dinner with these two guys later on tonight, I couldn't sign the damn thing. So I didn't, and I lost my job. So in the end, me losing my job wasn't even really about me. It was about the fact that I just, what I couldn't stick up for myself at the time, I I just couldn't do that to a pal, right? That so, would have been such a huge hurt for you, because if you'd signed that, you're disavowing yourself. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I'm glad, though, because at the time I was willing to sign away a whole lot of stuff. I was willing to say, you know, I'll never go on a date. I'll never talk about homosexuality as anything other than a sin. I was totally ready to sign all those things for myself. Because for me, it was membership in a community, right? And I was like, okay, I'll totally trade away all these things. And in some ways, I think that, you know, the, the thing that happened, which is that I didn't sign all those things, ended up being a much better thing because I was actually able to explore myself and to explore my sexuality and my gender identity in a way that there was room for it, which I wouldn't have had room if I had signed away all of my rights <laughs> in terms of my ability to explore. So the thing is, that, like, yeah, I think that in the long term, something beautiful has happened, uh, which is that I am able to be myself 
and am able to re-enter and explore like a faith-filled life, right? And that's something really gorgeous, you know, that's something really beautiful. And it wouldn't have happened otherwise, right? I've got to ask you something, because this is bound to have come up. How do you respond to Christians who say that being LGBT or Q is against God's plan? It's funny. I think that if you get right into it, there's an idea of like that if, if LGBTQ people exist, that somehow we contravene God's plan. And there's something about that that is strange to me because I think it's like, well, are we or are we not made in God's image? And the thing is that I am queer. And it's really tough, I think, for people to understand that if you're not. But in the same way as that somebody is straight or somebody is a woman or somebody is a man, I am a queer and genderqueer person. It is central and innate to my personhood. So it's not that I'm doing a behavior. It's that I am a person. And I think that insofar as I am who I am, that it must have been part of God's plan. And um, the other thing is that people who say that queerness or homosexuality or gender variance and diversity aren't part of God's plan, as if all queer people are, are merely a detriment or merely a sin. It's like there's a huge amount of richness that comes from LGBTQ wisdom and experience. And I think that is very much part of God's plan. So... I don't know, having, having, you know, lived and loved a lot of people in my communities, I don't see why it wouldn't be the case that God intended us to exist. I don't know, you know, we see through a glass darkly, but from this side of things, it looks like we're on purpose. It's kind of lovely that we exist. And what's it going to take to have people change and the church change? I think an openness in Anglican land which is to say the Anglican Church. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in the, in the Anglican Church, there's this, uh, there's this hymn that they sing called Draw the Circle Wide. And so it's draw the circle wide, draw it wider still, let this be our song. No one stands alone, standing side by side, draw the circle wide. And I love that idea that we draw the circle wide. And there's this idea that I think a lot of Christians have that there's not room, that there's not room for disagreement in the church, that there's not room for more than one doctrine, that that orthodoxy doesn't have room for disagreement. And I, I don't think that's true. I think that there's actually room for all of us. I think that God's love and commitment to us entails that there's room for us to be different. I'm very different from a lot of people. I live a different life than a lot of people globally. How much do we actually have in common with, you know, like Eritrean Christians? Not a lot, but I think that there's room for us. And in terms of like what it takes for people to come around is like, I don't know, what is it going to take for people to come around and to recognize my personhood, right? It's like, well, you know, I, I think that insofar as we recognize each other as persons, I don't need to have everything figured out. I need to love my neighbor. And insofar as like, I love my neighbor, I got to believe that there's room for us in the church. There's room for us in God's plan. There's room for us and all of our differences and disagreements. And I really think that there is room for us, right? Hope that would sell them. I don't know if it would. <laughs> Meg, thanks for coming on The Antidote. I really appreciate this. And thanks for being so open and upfront. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And we didn't end up talking a lot about music, but I, uh, I'm happy to come and share my story and be in your, in your corner and on your show.